Hey everybody, thanks for tuning in to today's episode of Real Talk. It's Lucas here, and I hope that today's episode informs and inspires you to have your own real conversations. As always, today's episode is brought to you by our friends over at Trivan, maker of trucks, trailers, and enclosure buildings tailored to your needs. Be sure to check them out at trivan.com. A huge thanks to them for sponsoring the show and making it possible. One other quick note before we get into today's episode is that if you are willing and able, if you could leave a review, preferably a five-star one, on any of the podcast networks or platforms that allow for it, such as Spotify or Apple Podcasts, that will be much appreciated as it helps get the word out there and lets people know what we're all about. So with that in mind, on to the episode. Hello, everybody. Welcome to this episode of Real Talk. This is uh, Lucas, your host for this episode. And on today's uh, episode, today's show, we have Reverend William Bugestein from Kalamazoo, Michigan. He's a pastor down there, and he's going to be joining us to talk about eschatology. He has uh, written a book on the topic, The Future of Everything, Essential Truths About the End Times, which uh, we'll link below if you'd like to pick up a copy. So uh, thank you, Reverend, for, uh, for joining the show. Yeah, thanks, uh, Lucas. Looking forward to talking with you. Great to be with you. Awesome. Okay, well, before we uh, dig into it too much, maybe just give people a quick background on on who you are, uh, where you're at, and uh, and what your interest uh, in this in in this topic is. Like, where did that come from? What started that? Yeah. Well, uh, thanks. I uh, grew up in West Michigan. We're pretty close to where I live now. Um, lived for a year in California, where I met my wife and. Uh, we got married a couple years later. We have four kids now. We've served, I've served a church in uh, Northeast Pennsylvania and have now been in Kalamazoo for um, a, a little over eight years. So it's been wonderful uh, to serve the church in over the last 15 years or so. And, and part of that has been writing, as you, as you mentioned. Um, the the uh, topic of eschatology um, was first suggested to me as a class that I could teach at uh, uh, in a couple of different places in connection with a ministry that I appreciate called ITEM, International Theological Education Ministries, um, which basically supplements some of the theological education of, of folks in developing countries who don't have a full uh, course, uh, all of the courses offered that they might want. So they asked me to write on the topic and I did that and uh, presented it also to the congregation, continued to get feedback and uh, refinement, and uh, was thankful that Reformation Heritage Books uh, was excited to publish it. So it's been a fun project and uh, a really important, really important topic because it, it definitely ties into uh, some of the most important things that we're all going to experience in one way or another. For sure, for sure. Yeah, that was uh, definitely a big theme for myself while reading through this, just finding out how important of a topic this is. And I don't think uh, it uh, it gets is probably enough play in terms of discussion amongst uh, in the Christian circles and maybe in our reformed churches as well, but it is very important and um, people should care about it. But first of all, maybe we'll just get back to the basics here. Um, what is eschatology and, uh, and why should people actually care about this topic? Yeah, eschatology, the, the, the term is intimidating because it's basically made up of a couple of, uh, foreign words. And so it's it's not part of our uh, terminology, but it's simply the doctrine of the last things or a word on the last things. And so we're basically 
um, looking to scripture to gain insights into what God says about uh, what the Puritans used to call the four last things, um, death, judgment, heaven, and hell. And so those are really the, the you might say, the, the cornerstones that we would build a biblical eschatology around. Um, the fact that everyone is going to die unless Christ comes prior to one's personal death. And then after death, as scripture says, comes the judgment. So we're all going to stand before the judgment seat of uh, Christ. And from that judgment seat, we will either be um, sent to uh, to hell or to heaven. And so if, if we look at it that way, eschatology, I think, becomes less, um, uh, less intimidating um, in terms of its accessibility, but certainly very, very important because we are going to, uh, we're going to experience death, judgment, and then either heaven or hell. Okay. Okay. So how do we go about making sense of, uh, of what the Bible tells us about the end times? We know, of course, there's, there's a lot of uh, prophecies, especially, of course, Revelation about, uh, about the end of times and whatnot. And that uh, has led to a number of different interpretations, which I think we'll get to later on in the show. But I think you start off your book, and I think it's a helpful rubric to follow. So we'll kind of just follow that a little bit. Um, how, do we, how do we make sense of prophecies and how do we piece them together? Yeah, well, it's a really important question because um, really, in a certain sense, the entire Bible is prophecy, right? It's it's God's prophetic word. Um, it's it's God speaking to us through uh, through the prophets and other writers revealing himself to us. And so I, I think if you start by looking at scripture as prophecy, then um, that would direct us to understand that the Bible is really a record of God's work of redemption among, among his people. And so um, the Bible is telling a story which has a beginning, a middle, and an end. And so I, I think that can take some of the um, uh, uh, anxiety out of studying uh, eschatology, where, you know, we turn to Genesis to understand the beginning of God's redemptive work. And then there's a middle to the scripture, in particular, where God uh, deals with his people Israel, and then through Israel presents our Savior Jesus and uh, the beginnings of the Church of Christ. And then how the story ends is uh, the subject especially of eschatology. And so looking at prophecy is really a, a message from God revealing to us uh, his work of redemption, not only the things in the future, but also things in the past. I think that's, I think that's very, very important. Um, and so Yes, the prophets themselves, who do point us to the future, uh, were eccentric at times and used symbols and images in their writings that are mysterious and can lend themselves to very fanciful interpretations. But if we resist those, uh, the tendency um, to let our imagination run wild when interpreting these images, um, really they're 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 painting word pictures for us so that we can understand. Uh, the important things uh, about the end times. And so, you know, even, even if you look at, like, the, say, the first chapter of Revelation, and you see these strange images of even the Lord Jesus Christ with a sword coming out of his mouth and um, just this fiery image, um, well, we, we, would, we would all recognize that there's no reason to take those symbols literally. What John is showing us is um, the, the power of Jesus Christ, the fact that his 
that Jesus' dear friend John, who once reclined on his breast at meals, now falls down dead as, as if he was dead before the Lord Jesus because he's been glorified. And, um, and so the, the, the sword and the fiery image is presenting to us um, in, in, I'm sure, the best way possible, uh, the sense of God's glory in Jesus Christ. And so um, you could you could track that all the way through the book of Revelation and say, now, now don't don't feel pressed to view these images literally. They're they're conveying a message to us that is um, uh, a, a a powerful communication of God set set forth in images. So so understand the prophets. They do have strange ways of communicating sometimes, but they're really really telling us how to honor the Lord and His glory and majesty, and how to be prepared. Uh, to meet the Lord as John did face to face. Okay, no, that's that's helpful. I appreciate that. So I guess um, again, just just working off of how you've laid it on the book, because I think it was a helpful way to uh, to understand the topic to to get to know it. Uh, you talk about uh, a personal eschatology after you've kind of introduced the topic. How do we understand the end times? Um, like the importance of this personal personal es eschatology. Um, what what does the Bible say about um, about eschatology? What do we know about what happens to us after we die? Because I think uh, I don't know if we spend enough time thinking about it. But in terms of is it uh, is it the case that you know uh, we go immediately to heaven or immediately to hell, and what, how do we make uh, make sense of the earth being renewed one day? Um, this was uh, I think these are things I like. At least I'm just speaking personally here. But when I read through the book, I was I thought I was struck by oh yeah I think I haven't really thought about this enough. And uh, yeah, there is there is that interim period. Like, of course, we don't we don't believe in the doctrine of purgatory like the Catholics, but there is a period of waiting, and there will be a final judgment, and that is actually that is actually not yet uh, to be meted out. So that is that is still coming. So I thought that was quite interesting. So I guess maybe just just launch the battle a little bit, explain what does the Bible actually teach about what happens when we die. Yeah. Well, we understand death to be the the separation, the the re-dividing of a person's body and soul. And so um, we've been to funerals, perhaps, where we see a body in a casket, a body being lowered into the ground, and we we recognize that there's that a, a significant part of that person is is not present anymore, right? There's there's a lifelessness about the person. So so the Bible teaches that at death. Um, the body returns to the ground, returns back to the elements from which it was gathered up. We have that beautiful picture of, of uh, God in um, Genesis uh, forming man from the dust of the earth, using the basic elements of the earth to create this living, um, moving person. Death is a is a, a a dissolution of that of that union of the body and the soul, and a return of the body to the earth. But Scripture also teaches that the soul. Um, doesn't die at uh, what we would call physical death. The soul is eternal. We all have never dying souls. And so one of the reasons that we should think about eschatology is because um, we, we can't avoid dealing with death and we can't pretend that everything is just over at death. A, a lot of, of course, modern materialists would say, you know, it doesn't really matter what happens uh, after I die, because everything is going to be over. But the Bible says, no, the spirit returns to the God who made it. And so um, 
there is, as you mentioned, a, what theologians refer to as an intermediate state uh, between one's personal death and the judgment of the Lord Jesus Christ. Um, but, but already in that intermediate state, the deceased will begin to live out um, the, uh, the beginnings of their eternal destiny. And so we wouldn't say that, um, that a believer at death experiences everything that the Lord has in store for him. There is um, a sense of, of incompleteness prior to the uh, resurrection of the body, the reunion of a real body to our reasonable soul. We see in the book of Revelation, even those who have gone to be with the Lord, uh, crying out, how long, O Lord? How long until you finish this redemption? And so it, it's both true, uh, what Paul says, that to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord, and that that is better by far than being in this uh, current state. And yet, even the, um, the, the spirits of people made perfect, as Hebrews says, uh, are not yet experiencing everything that they will one day because we're we're really made to live as embodied uh spirits or um spirit you know spirited bodies however you want to put it and so we we're we're craving as paul says not to be unclothed not not just to be released from this physical body and to be spiritually present with the lord we're destined for a real um imperishable body to be joined with our souls. So a long way of saying, um, at death, we will begin to realize our eternal destiny in part. And so um, the the damned, those who refuse to repent of their sins and trust in the Lord Jesus Christ, will begin to live out a destiny of, of frustration and sadness. And, um, and so it's so vital to understand this theme because it urges us to repent of our sins and to trust in Christ and to cleave to him for life and joy now, but also in eternity as well. So, so there's that preliminary state. Um, we, we don't know how long that, that waiting period will be, but there will be a judgment. Uh, the Apostle Paul tells the Athenian philosophers in Acts 17 that um, God will judge the earth by the person, Jesus Christ. And so we await that judgment. Um, believers await that judgment with confidence because uh, the one who's coming to judge has already endured our penalty that our sins deserved for us. And so he's coming to us not as, um, uh, as, a, as a terror, but as our, as our friend, as an ally uh, who will represent us before the throne of God and then give to his people the blessed reward that we've been waiting for. Mm -hmm. Is one of the uh, the ways we know this uh, from scripture is one of the main proofs that uh, the parable of Lazarus and the rich man? Yeah, absolutely. That is, um, it's a powerful, a powerful image, isn't it? Of uh, of the suffering of the uh, on the part of the one who would not submit to the Lord, and the relief of the one who uh, the Lord had mercy upon. So. Yeah, I mean, I think too much can be made of a parable. Uh, we don't we don't want to look at a parable and try to try to uh, give a, a detailed explanation from the parable about what the the reality will be for us. But certainly, the point is of that parable that um, there there is a real judgment, and you must be prepared for it. Mm -hmm. 
Mm-hmm. Yeah, I don't know if, uh, at least again, speaking personally, and I, I think this might be the case for many people, if we think about death, uh, at least as far as, as believers going to heaven, you think, oh yeah, they, they died, they went to heaven, which, yeah, they go to be with the Lord, but it, it is this bit of an interim state where that they do cry out, how long, oh Lord, because they, well, they, they're looking for the reunification. That's exactly right, Lucas. And so sometimes you hear uh, at funerals, you know, people will say something like, you know, our loved one is now hand in hand with Jesus or is is walking, you know, in the flesh with the Lord now. And, and you know, funeral may not be a time to rebuke a person for bad theology, but the, the reality is um, you, you might think of asking the person, do you believe in a, in a real resurrection? I mean, is, is, is the resurrection not yet coming? And so there, there is a there is a relief, of course, and so it, we can be thankful for a person who's trusting in the Lord to have passed from this life into the life to come, and yet there is a real waiting, and and we ought to honor that, as you've said. Mm-hmm. But and the flip side of that is also true in terms of I I believe I don't know if you you coined the term or maybe you didn't coin the term, but it was used in the book the narthex of hell is is where the unbelievers are waiting. Is that uh, yeah? I don't know if we we also contend with that too. Like you think about you know people in history or evil people, you know, Hitler being a classic example. Like oh, he'd be burning in hell. Well, you're like, well, uh, he's yeah. actually not. He's just awaiting final judgment, which is actually a far scarier proposition. But well, it is because especially at that point, it's known to you know in this life, a person can imagine that there is no judgment coming. They can imagine that there is no God that they uh, can live however they uh, feel with no repercussions. But for uh, those who have rejected the Lord and have died in that unbelief, um, it, is, it is now known to them that they've made a terrible decision. And, and so that, that, that pending doom is um, surely a terrible thing. And, and, and yet it's, it's avoidable. And that's, that's the beauty of the gospel. The Lord says, um, why will you perish, right? Why will you do this? And so, yeah, it is a sobering message, but it's it's one that we it, we we don't have to have the full weight of judgment fall upon us if we accept that it's it's fallen on Christ on our behalf. Um, then we can uh, look forward uh, to the return of Christ with joy and with with expectation. And and I think the other thing that you that you've alluded to is that um, a, a lot of people today just assume that. Um, that dying some t- somehow sanctifies a person, no matter whether they were believers or not. I mean, you've you've all, I I suspect you've never been to a funeral where where um, you know where everybody just assumed and that uh, the person who had died uh, is is certainly no longer uh, in a state of 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 hopefulness. Or I mean, everybody you know is apparently going to heaven, and so at least at a funeral, that's what, that's the kind of sense that you get. And so we, we have to resist that and say, no, there, there truly is a heaven. There truly is a hell and there'll be real people in both places. And we shouldn't, we shouldn't assume that by simply being good or having died, we're somehow um, immune from, from ever going to hell. It is, it is something to be, uh, to, to tremble over and to, to take seriously. Agreed. Agreed. Yeah. If we don't uh, acknowledge that, then there is no no sense of urgency to to the people we're trying to share, share the gospel with in terms of you need to repent. Like you you are not good. You will not be saved on your own. 
Yeah. Um, right. Yeah. Okay. So tying into that, I guess. Uh, so in this in this interim time, uh, people, uh, the saints are crying out, "How long, O Lord, uh, until you will come back in in, in your final judgment?" Um, what that actually looks like is uh, is the subject of some debate in uh, Christian circles. Do you want to outline the three major positions and kind of walk us through that? Uh, sorry, the three major uh, in terms of uh, uh, yeah, post millennial, pre millennial, yeah, a millennial. Millennium. Yeah. yeah, no, that's you're right. There is there is some discussion on that. Um, the millennium simply refers to some period of time in relation of of the of a of a rule of Jesus Christ um, in relation to his return. And so, to to try to break it down simply, premillennialists envision a thousand year earthly reign of Christ after his return. And so they uh, suppose that that Christ will come down to earth physically and inaugurate a, a thousand year earthly reign. And um, by contrast, post-millennials, uh, post-millennialists, although have, having a different view, have a somewhat literal view of this, uh, of a sort of thousand year reign as uh, Revelation 20 refers to it as, but post-millennialists envision a golden age, um, not necessarily of, of, a, of, an, of an exactly literal thousand years in which though the principles of Christ permeate the world prior to Christ's return. So in this claiming the gospel and bringing the principles of the kingdom of God to bear in the world in which we live, and that this will bear increasing fruit uh, leading up to uh, the return of Jesus Christ. Um, the the position that I'm more sympathetic to uh, is referred to often as amillennialism, not because it doesn't take a position, but because it doesn't envision a literal um, uh, uh, earthly reign of Christ uh, in in this present age. And so what the Lord encourages disciples by saying that all authority on heaven and earth has been given to me. And because of that, we should go and make disciples of all nations. Um, but primarily the rule of Christ uh, in the church now is in the hearts and lives of God's people as we're renewed by faith uh, through the gospel and begin to live out Christian principles in our lives and in our vocations and urge our friends and neighbors to do the same, um, and and we believe that this um, more 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 spiritual authority of Christ in this age will expand to a complete um, spiritual and physical rule of Christ in the age to come. And so, um, you know, all all Christians look for the return of Jesus Christ, and so we we want to recognize that and honor that, um, but also recognize that there are differences in terms of. Uh, not only the theology of um, the nature of Christ's uh, rule in relation to his return, but also what that looks like for us in terms of how we live out our responsibilities. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yeah, there's definitely some big uh, implications in terms of how you live your life today based on what you think of the end times. Um, Correct. Are you able to to work out some of those implications, like one being a little more positive, one being a little more uh, negative, perhaps, and um, and kind of I don't know if if you can make the case like steel, steel man a case for for either post millennial or pre millennial. Like, uh, what is the line of thinking that leads people down that path? How do they see the Bible supporting that view? 
Yeah, well, um, it would be it'd be helpful to probably turn to uh, Revelation twenty because the idea of the of of the millennium comes from a uh, a phrase used a few times in Revelation twenty. Uh, maybe I could just read a few verses uh, from Revelation twenty and starting at. Um, 11. Then I saw a great white throne and him who was seated on it. From his presence, earth and sky fled away and no place was found for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne and the books were opened. Then another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged by what was written in the books according to what they had done. And the sea gave up the dead who were in it. Death and Hades gave up the dead who were in them. And they were judged each one of them according to what they had done. And death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. So there's the, the picture of a judgment. Uh, but in connection with that, if we could go back to verse one of chapter 20, um, John writes this, then I saw an angel coming down from heaven, holding in his hand the key to the bottomless pit and a great chain. And he seized the dragon, that ancient serpent, who was the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years and threw him into the pit and shut it and sealed it over him so that he might not deceive the nations any longer until the thousand years were ended. After that, he must be released for a little while. So so all Christians look at, that, look at those verses and say, well, there, there's something happening for some period, which here is called a thousand years, uh, in which the devil is um, in some way bound, doesn't have the same uh, capacity to frustrate the, uh, to deceive the nations, um, but that afterward he'll be given some freedom to, uh, for a time, resume his his reign of, of terror and deceit. And so, um, First of all, I would say to to see the thousand years as a literal number is is really inconsistent with how the Bible um, very commonly uses numbers, especially numbers um, like this that are very round numbers, not you know not a very particular type of number. And so, uh, probably what we should envision here is a is a general period, not not a literal thousand years. Um, and then if we if we could read on just a few more verses here in verse four, then I saw thrones and seated on them were those to whom the authority to judge was committed. Also, I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded for the testimony of Jesus and for the word of God and those who had not worshipped the beast or its image and had not received its mark on their foreheads or on their hands. They came to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. The rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were ended. This is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy is the one who shares in the first resurrection. Over such the second death has no power, but they will be priests of God and of Christ, and they will reign with him for a thousand years. Yeah, so, um, yeah, what, what, what you have here is, I believe, a picture of uh, the Lord um, reviving the, his people, which we might call the first resurrection. And so... Um, Everyone who is born again is revived from death 
and uh, given new life. And so at that moment, um, they begin living under the, deliberately under the reign of Jesus Christ and the authority of Jesus Christ. And so that's, I think that's a testimony to um, the, uh, the millennium being now. And I think the other thing that, that you notice here is that really beginning with the ministry of Jesus Christ, you, you see the reality of what John is envisioning here beginning to happen. Um, Satan no longer being able to deceive the nations as he once had. If you think about the, the gospel ministry leading up to the time of Jesus Christ, you see that it, it went to very few nations, right? There were the occasional uh, foreigner from here or there that came to Israel or to whom the gospel went through Jonah or whatever. But largely, it's it's one nation that was given light uh, of the gospel. But 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 even at the coming of Christ, you have Pentecost in which um, numerous nations are represented and come to believe in Jesus Christ and take the message back home. And now there isn't there's hardly a place uh, on the face of the earth where the name of Jesus isn't known. And so I think all of these reasons suggest to us that um, that the millennium is in fact a, a present reality of Christ's rule that will expand to a complete er, a physical and spiritual rule in the age to come. Okay. Okay. No, that's that's helpful. Thanks for um, sharing that and, and and sorting that out for us. I guess uh, maybe the next topic to kind of move to, which is the next chapter in your book, is this uh, the resurrection of the dead. Um, you started off that chapter by talking about how many uh, Americans, I would assume it's likely the same here in Canada, was about only a third, I think, believed that their physical body would actually be resurrected. That seemed like a surprising stat to me. Can you go into uh, why that is is a troubling stat and what that says about, uh, like, we believe in the resurrection of Christ, but we don't believe in the resurrection of our own body? Uh, something something isn't right there. Can you talk about that a bit? Well, yeah, I think I think probably the the simplest answer to that is just is just biblical and theological illiteracy. Um, you know, if if you've grown up in a church where the Bible is preached and where the Bible is read in the in the home, um, if you go to a school where Scripture is taught, you 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 will likely not be part of that number that uh, didn't recognize the resurrection of the dead, Jesus Christ, which of course most people know about just from. Um, you know, just from uh, being part of a, uh, a somewhat uh, Christian culture, um, the, the retro resurrection of Jesus Christ is the first fruit, the scripture says, of, of the resurrection of believers. And that's why it's so important to us. That's why Paul, in 1 Corinthians 15, Christ has risen so that your faith is not in vain, so that you're not still dead in your sins, so that when you die, you actually uh, will continue as Christ has continued through death. So um, we just we just don't know the Bible the way that uh, the way that we 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 should as a culture. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that is true. Okay, uh, what can we expect Judgment Day to to look like? Now that we know after kind of working through this that there will be this this interim period and uh, Christ will come back and judge, and that the thousand years is not a literal thousand years for more. A general time period for Christ's work to be done, the gospel to be spread amongst nations. Uh, what do we know about Judgment Day, and what uh, what does the Bible tell us about that? Scripture presents Judgment Day as a as a sorting, uh, as as a distinguishing um, experience, and so you've got parables that Jesus tells leading up to his crucifixion. Um, you know the the parable of the sheep and the goats, and 
um, the, the parable of the ten uh, virgins, some wise and some foolish. And 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 both of those, for example, um, uh, present to us a, a, a distinguishing of those who on earth are less easily distinguished, right? We, we, um, there's a mingling of sheep and goats, of believers and unbelievers, even in the church, certainly in, in our culture. Um, but at the, at the last day, the Lord Jesus will personally and physically distinguish forever uh, those who are united to him and those who uh, desire to be separate from him. And so, um, yeah, Jesus says at the end of Matthew 25 uh, that the, the, the goats will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. And so the, the judgment is a separation of the righteous and the wicked. Um, and, and we can say um, on the basis of, of, of what we've done in the body, as scripture says, primarily what we've done in the body in relation to the call of the gospel have we have we thrown ourselves at god's mercy and and pledged our loyalty to his 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 son and our savior or have we in the body decided that we're sufficient on our own and, and going to be independent of the lord and so um yeah we we need to be uh yeah it's a sobering it's a sobering thing and and yet um, the Belgic Confession says that we look to the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, which will usher in the second, uh, the final judgment, uh, with uplifted heads. In other words, there's this this sense of anticipation and looking forward to the coming of Christ for believers, uh, because the um, the not only has the sting of death been removed, but the terror of judgment has been removed. We know what God's judgment is already, because. As Paul says in Romans chapter 8, there is now therefore no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. So that judgment, um, there, there, isn't an, there isn't an element of surprise for the believer because the, the gospel tells us that we cannot be condemned because Christ was once condemned for us. Mm -hmm. on, the, on the topic of judgment, uh, towards the end of the chapter there, we talk about exercising modesty in judging others because we know how terrible God's judgment will be, and we should be careful about how we uh, uh, ascribe that judgment on onto others. Um, at the last portion there, you, you write, uh, today is not the day for praying spiteful curses against those who curse us, but, quote, the time of prayer for enemies and bringing the good news to the ends of the earth, end quote. And that's from Matthew 5. Um, and I do agree with that, but I also do wonder, how does that uh, align with some of the Psalms, particularly some of the imprecatory Psalms where we're we're told like it is okay to pray for the downfall of, of our well, our enemies and ultimately God's enemies. How do we how do we balance those two perspectives? Yeah, well, um, the imprecatory psalms do balance them for us. Uh, so I I firmly I mean we we read through the psalms in sequence every single Lord's Day evening. Um, we we don't pull any out in our you know we we deal with every single psalm including the judgment psalms. Yeah. Um, but what we notice there is that um, the David, who's the author of most of the imprecatory psalms, is not is not praying uh, is is praying for God to do what He's already promised He's going to do. And so David is not uh, exercising personal vengeance in the imprecatory psalms. In fact, he says in some of the psalms that he 
um, that his prayers are uh, are the judge. Uh, in other words, his prayers are his expression of judgment. But he with he withholds from um, from vengeance. He he says, "I I pray for my enemies." In fact. Um, and yet I know that the Lord is going to judge. And so I'm calling on the Lord to do what he's going to do. So we, we do recognize um, the, the validity of, of imprecatory psalms. We, we ought to use them. Uh, but we use them in, in, the, in, in the recognition of, of God's plan to judge the nations and we we also recognize that in the new testament there are you know there is something new about the new testament right there is there is in a new attitude there's a refining of the believer's perspective and so david living on the other side of the cross is expressing something true and real um about the evil of mankind and about this the oppression of the godly at the hand of the wicked that that is all very very real even today um, and yet he does lack something, right? He lacks a, a perspective. You know, the, the Apostle Peter says that the prophets of old desired to look into the things that we now know and, and fully experience. And so, yes, we, we should pray for God to bring down uh, those who are belligerent and those who will not submit to him, while at the same time, we pray that the wicked would also take refuge in the Lord Jesus Christ as we have. So I think I think if you read the imprecatory psalms and, and study them properly, you do see there is the balance of um, of uh, recognizing evil, but also uh, you know praying for our enemies and and uh, expecting the Lord to continue to bring even evil men like the Apostle Paul into His kingdom. Mm -hmm, for sure, yeah, people can certainly have a change of heart as we see with Paul and many others in Scripture. Okay, so I want to be respectful of your time. I know we only have you for about 45 minutes, so probably about 10 minutes or so left. I want to hit a couple things here. Uh, hell, the new heaven and the new earth, and then just the general implications of, of what we learned today. So let's start with hell. Uh, people don't like to talk about it generally in our culture. Or if they do, they make it a joke and say, oh, yeah, I'm, with, you know, I'm going to hell and so are all my friends sort of thing. Right. Uh, that's, that's hilarious. Um, what, should, what should we know about hell? What do we know about hell? Uh, should we get, is it matter about the specifics? Like, is it a, a fiery lake of fire or is it cold or is it, is it hot, whatever? Yeah. And then, um, yeah, just, just what do we know about hell? Well, Lucas, if, if hell is a joking matter, then we can't trust literally anything that Jesus said, because no one presents more on hell in the Bible than our Lord Jesus Christ. And um, it's been it's been uh, documented that Jesus speaks more about hell than about heaven. He's he's honest about the implications of 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 ungodliness and unrepentance. And so, what Scripture teaches about hell is that it is in fact a place of judgment that will never end against the unsaved. Um, a terrible place. Now, as you alluded to. Um, we, we've had we have all kinds of imaginative presentations about hell, paintings and um, uh, literary depictions about hell as, as a as a fiery place and and so on. And some of that is drawn, of course, from the images of Jesus Christ. You know, teaching on it. You know, he's he says the fire isn't quenched. Um, you know, the worm of destruction doesn't die. And so he uses all kinds of. Um, uh, potent images to describe hell, 
but that's not necessarily to suggest that that those images are literal, right? And so what what we do know about hell is that it is it is it is the absence not of God, but of God's grace, of His goodness, of of an absence of hope, an absence of cheer and joy and love and potential and all of the things that even even unbelieving people are are beneficiaries of in this age um just the natural goodness the the fact that you know at the end of a hot day um you often get a cool breeze and and you are able to lay down after a hard day and and sleep and all of this the, the many goodness many examples of goodness that the lord demonstrates will be completely absent in hell so it's it's a place in which um uh regret and disappointment and frustration will be constant will be the absolute norm and so it it it, it shouldn't be said that you know um if you, if you don't have a, a a literal understanding of hell as a fiery place that you have a soft view of hell um no the 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 the, the, the psychological and relational uh darkness that the new testament uh, um, uses to describe hell is is truly terrifying. And I mean, you, yeah. Sometimes, sometimes if you were given an option to endure some physical pain or to have the you know uh, absolute anxiety or some other psychological uh, uh, issue, you might choose physical pain, right? I mean, physical pain is not the very worst thing that can happen to a person, and so hell is a terrible place. Um, even if it's not, uh, you know, according to the pictures that we've sometimes seen drawn up about it. Mm -hmm. Yes, and it's important to know that, obviously, as, as you demonstrated there. Okay, let's flip to the positive side now. Uh, heaven, heaven, the new heavens and the new earth. Uh, what does the Bible teach us about this? What do we know? Is it going to be like the promised land, but uh, but Willy Wonka's chocolate factory sort of mm -hmm. thing? Uh, yeah. what, what do we know about this? Well, I think the best way to answer that question is to look at one of the best ways to answer that is to look at the original paradise and uh, th that God made for Adam and Eve. And uh, that's not to say that that's exactly what heaven will be, but we we have some signs of what God understands perfection to be. So it's a place of abundance, right? Uh, Adam and Eve lacked no good thing in in paradise. It's a place of potential right? Uh, the, the, it's amazing. The Lord builds a, you know, creates a garden for Adam and Eve and says, it's very good. And he says, now you cultivate it. You know, you bring out the goodness from it that is latent uh, in the earth. And so um, I, I, I'm convinced by scripture that heaven is a place of productivity and development and, and learning and growing. And um, so I think, I think, so one of the reasons that we struggle with heaven is that because we is because we've detached it so much from the the realities that we experience every day that it must be something totally different, totally unlike uh, this present earth, and and that leaves us not even knowing how to relate to it at all, right? I mean, because everything we know is is based on this earth, but there's really no reason to think that heaven should be vastly different from. Um, uh an earth without sin right i mean we have we have bodies to relate to an earth and so the promise of the resurrection and new glorified bodies surely corresponds to a, a sort of 
life that you can enjoy with a real body. And so I think the best thing to do is say, the Lord is, uh, as he says in uh, through the Apostle Peter, is going to refine this present world, um, purge it of sin and all of the signs of sin and all of the um, the, the residue of sin and remake a place that's perfectly habitable for uh, people who have been remade themselves in righteousness. So the new heavens and the new earth, which I, I think is best understood as a, as a coming together again of the place of God and the place of people, uh, which now is separated because of sin, um, is, is the best of all places. It's a place for righteousness to dwell, but, but we dwell in it in in ways that I think will find uh, very resonant with our the best of the present life that we live. That's exciting, mother, well, because yeah, there so. are yeah. yeah there are nice things like you can you can see the the kernel of beauty in, in the things of this earth still, and yeah, to, to to experience that fully will be uh, be tremendous. So. That is exciting. Okay. So um, now knowing all this, and I, I apologize for our listeners, we had to have a bit of a shorter episode, but I think we packed a punch. We packed a lot of stuff in here. It's been great. Um, now knowing all these things that we know about eschatology and the end times, what is the application? We're at the end of the sermon here. How, how then shall we live after, after learning all these things? Yeah. Well, you should live uh, in, in, uh, in an anticipatory way. So in other words, we're looking forward, right? We're like, we are pilgrims now. Um, and just like the Israelites who were uh, pil uh, on their pilgrimage from Egypt to the promised land, they're looking forward, right? They're looking to what God has reserved for them. Uh, the Apostle Peter says that our inheritance is reserved in heaven for us. And so we're looking for that to happen. Um, so, so we're hopeful. We are courageous. We do not have to fear what the world can do to us. Um, the Lord Jesus has has paid our pardon. He has reserved a place for us, which he describes as as uh, a place of many rooms or a place of many mansions, a good place. It's all it's all preserved for us, and so we don't have to fear. Um, we should live also uh, tenaciously committed to the Great Commission, right? The the thing that Jesus gives to his disciples on the eve of his departure to begin preparing a place for us is a task to make disciples of all nations. And so while we're anticipating what, what good God has in store for us, we don't want to be selfish and say, well, um, it's all for me. No, we're to make disciples of others so that all people, people from all nations rather, should be able to enjoy the good things that God has in store for us as well. And so if, if we could go back just for a moment to um, some of the uh, some of the the distinctions between end times views, um, uh, premillennialists sometimes have what what theologians call an, what, what theologians sometimes call an underrealized eschatology. In other words, there's there's no sense there, there's there's too little sense I should say in that theology that God is already doing powerful, amazing things, kingdom things in this present age. And, and so we shouldn't, we shouldn't have that view. We should believe that God's kingdom is, is in part truly now, so we should live courageously and we should bring the, principle of the principles of the kingdom to bear even on this present age. Now, by contrast, I would suggest that post-millennialism sometimes 
suffers from an over-realized eschatology, which expects that the, the kingdom in really in its fullness can be experienced or, or something very, very close to its fullness can be experienced now uh, that by by good government and by Christians being good at work and be uh, promoting uh, the principle of the kingdom, we can we can experience something quite like heaven on earth. And we want to be striving for that, but I, I think we want to be cautious. I'm, I'm less concerned personally about that view than the former, uh, but we should be cautious to try to import something through politics or through, uh, you know, through laws or through, um, you know, colonial type rules in a, in a particular, uh, in a particular place, trying to create a, a, a sort of utopia on earth. Um, no, we should be faithful, hopeful, faithful, trusting, diligent, um, and and watch as the Lord does great things among us. And so um, we should pray against the defeat. We, we should pray for the defeat of Satan. Um, we should pray that everything that Satan stands for would, would begin to falter even in this age. And so there's much that can be done, uh, very little that can be done, of course, apart from prayer, but we pray and we work and we expect God to begin to show us signs of what we will experience in full one day. So there's there's much more that could be said uh, than that. But um, eschatology is meant to uh, is meant to perk us up. It's meant to uh, open our eyes to the good things that God has in store for us, and it's meant to drive us forward in in diligence in the in the fullness of what God has called us to to think and to say and to do in our in our personal lives, in our family lives, in our relations, in our in our work, uh, in whatever God has called us to do, we do it all of our heart uh, because he's working through us right now even to establish his kingdom. Well said, Aura at Lavora. Thank you very much yeah. for your time. Much appreciated, Reverend. Well, pleasure talking with you, Lucas. Thanks so much for, for having me today. Wonderful. Okay, well, for all our listeners, thanks for tuning in. Hope you enjoyed this uh, this episode. If you have any questions or concerns, please uh, send it to us. We can always uh, reach out to get some clarification after the fact. So till next time, folks, keep on real talk. We'll catch you later. Thanks for tuning in to this episode of Real Talk. We really appreciate you taking the time to listen or watch the show. If you want to send us your feedback, and we'd love to hear it, please email us at reformedrealtalk at gmail.com. If you want to find us online or social media, we've got a lot of great content there. Just search Reformed Real Talk and we should come right up. This show is created and produced by myself, Lucas Holtfluer, and Tyler Vanderwood. And our wonderful podcast manager who does all the editing is Mariah Tamiga. So we're really thankful for her contribution to the show as well. That's all for now, folks. Thanks for watching or listening, and we'll catch you next time.